0: The scriptures still give us a great model for figuring out how to invest what God has given us over the course of a lifetime. And you have to think in terms of an entire arc of a woman's life, or you will be trying to do it all and find out that you can't.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Today, I want you to meet Carolyn McCulley, the author of several books, including The Measure of Success, Uncovering the Biblical Perspective on Women, Work, and the Home. You'll meet Carolyn in just a moment. This program is a weekly conversation with people who have encountered Jesus Christ and placed their lives into His hands, submitting to His purposes. Each week, we feature a different story, and they're all available to you online at firstpersoninterview.com. Just click the Listen button for the complete archive of past programs. Again, that's FirstPersonInterview.com. Well, Carolyn McCauley is an author and filmmaker who has a wonderful story to tell herself of turning to Christ as a young adult. As a single woman, she's given a lot of thought and study on the issues women face in the workplace and at home. Her book is titled The Measure of Success, and when we spoke, I asked her to begin by giving me the highlights of her own faith story of coming to Christ.
0: I'd love to say it was my decision, but actually, God came after me, and that part of my testimony is very encouraging to me, and it's encouraging to other people, because um, I was that typical prodigal teen and young adult, and so I know that I am an encouragement to many people (laughs) that it is possible for God to grab you as an adult. (laughs) My mom was faithful to take all of us to Mass. I was reared as a Catholic, but I didn't have the ears to hear the Gospel at the time. And, um, but I'm very grateful to Mom for the foundation that she gave us in the basis of going to church and having that experience and being instructed in the things of the Lord. um uh, so I had a brief encounter as a teenager with a very unbiblical form of a Pentecostal church and um, very very much into the prosperity gospel and into other uh, topics that weren't focused on the gospel. There was, unfortunately, a youth pastor who was uh, praying on the girls, and by the time he got mm. to me, since I was already a wild child, I said, wait a minute, I know this routine. Mm. And I, I turned him in, and that caused a huge division in the church, and the long story short was by eighteen I figured I had seen the full spectrum of Christianity and that I I just didn't see any validity in it. I didn't see any fruit in it. But that was my experience. Um there were many people, you know, in those situations who went on to flourish with the Lord, but I didn't at that time. And so I rebelled all through college and I studied journalism and I studied women's studies at It answered for me a lot of reasons why I had a chip on my shoulder. It also, I think... Possibly set some tone for later in life because there I am in the women's studies department, like men are the problem. And I'm like, but I'd still like to date a few of them. You know? like, that and that contradiction gets picked up. You know, it's like, huh? No dates, chip on shoulder. I wonder if there's a connection. So uh, anyway, I went on through my 20s pursuing a career in media, and I wasn't politically active in feminism; more culturally active. But I lacked the wisdom to understand if I did push this one button, why did I get this result? I wanted things that were different in my life, but I was sowing to habits and to um, and ways of thinking that weren't going to get me what I wanted. And yet, I lacked the wisdom to even understand that. But God was kind and began to change my life little by little, and I gave up my party ways little by little. And I see that as just his kindness to me because it made it a little easier to transition into the church when he did grab me. Hmm. But my sister, my younger sister, had become a Christian in college, and she was faithful to love me when it was like visiting my apartment was like sitting on the inside of an ashtray. It was mm. <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> I had no, no vision for the home, much less a clean one. And, uh, and so she just loved me and was a faithful witness and would tell me about the amazing things that God was doing, and I would just kind of shrug and go, "Huh," and move on. But she and uh, the man who went on to become my brother-in-law went to South Africa to study at a Bible college there. And this was right before my 30th birthday. And I thought, you know, if somebody goes abroad, it's my policy to scrape together my pennies and go. And, you know, it's the best way to visit. So I decided to treat myself to this trip. Um, But right beforehand... I had started to see a therapist, and I wanted to understand why I was angry all the time and why I was single, (laughs) Was what's there possibly a connection. And and she was into a particular kind of dream therapy, and it's interesting what God uses to grab your attention, the different ways that He works, um, because she asked me to talk about a dream that I had constantly. And, and it was this dream um, where it was my wedding day, but I always had on the wrong shoes. I never knew who I was marrying. That almost didn't seem like it was tangential or important to this situation. It's, I wasn't prepared. I'm walking down the, the aisle and I've got Hirachi sandals on or somebody's trying to give me black pet and leather shoes. And I'm just like, no, this isn't going to work. And so when I told her this dream, I thought she'd say I was conflicted about getting married, but she said, no. In our belief system, it's your shoes, and they mean that it's they're symbolic of your foundation in life. You're building on the wrong foundation. Mm-hmm. And this is what she said to me right before I went to South Africa. And it was so insightful, because that was true. And when I went to South Africa, I heard the gospel on Easter Sunday, and um, this was the time period of South Africa's upheaval right before apartheid was coming to an end. And so I was in a church that was committed to racial reconciliation, to praying with the different leaders around the the nation, and to modeling um, racial harmony. And it wasn't just like, you know, black people were on one side and white people were on the other. They were really intermingled, and you could see the relationships. And that witness meant a lot to me as a new believer. Um, and even as one who was in process, because I could look at this and think, huh, these people actually put their money where their mouths are with the biggest issue in South Africa. So that, that witnessed to me the first Sunday. The second Sunday was Easter, and the pastor, um, he was preaching a, a very historical sermon about Jesus, the evidence that he existed and, and, and the confirmations for. It. And I was fascinated by, as a journalist I thought he had some really good details and as a film producer I was producing commercial films at the time I was really impressed with the well done band and <laughs> and the, the production value of the church
1: You you were a producer weren't you
0: <laughs> yeah, I really was and uh, they had this band had just released a a a, a recording on Hosanna Integrity called Rejoice Africa for anybody who might be an old-timer like me and remember that, <laughs> So th- these people were top-notch musicians, and so I enjoyed it. Um, um, and in the white noise in my brain during the trip, I kept hearing the lyrics of the song Ancient of Days, mm. um, and that every knee will bow, and, and so that line just kept coming back to me, and so when I heard the gospel, given my background... At, at, when I was a teenager, I knew to expect the altar call, and I wasn't going to go forward. But I was busy crying, and you know, like, you think you're being subtle, but everybody's looking like, oh, God's <laughs> working on her, tangentially. But I had just started using Retin-A to try to clear up my skin, and the doctor didn't tell me, this is going to make it far worse before it gets oh, better. Oh. And so I was absolutely cretinous, and I felt like my sister was saying, oh, here's my sister from America, and I'd be like, ah, <laughs> you know, here I am. I didn't want to go forward because my face looked bad. (laughs) So I wasn't going to go for that reason, and I wasn't going to go because I wasn't willing to submit. I knew what going down for the altar call meant, and I wasn't ready for it. But the Lord sent this guy from—now, this is a huge church in South Africa. It sat 7,000 people at a time. And sent somebody from the far corner of the church to come and pray for me. And and he prayed some very specific things to help me to understand that this was God— and I thought, uh oh, he is after me. So for the remainder of the trip I simply asked my sister and brother in law, you know, what about this and what about that? And they'd had a sense in prayer before I came that God was gonna do this work and that they were to be quiet and stay out of his way. <laughs> which was good because my brother in law is a good salesman and if he twi- tried to twist my arm into <laughs> yeah, the gospel. You would have run the
1: other way, wouldn't you? I, yeah. Yeah.
0: Certainly would have resisted him. So that's that's how I began my journey of backing into the kingdom of God. It took good Six months, I would say um, before I was willing to really identify, I remember holding my Bible um, in such a way that you couldn't see the gilt edges of the book so other people wouldn't you know know that I was actually carrying a Bible. I was you know backing into it, trying it, willing to do it. Um, The church I ended up finding, people misunderstood the story about me becoming a Christian in in Africa. They thought I was a missionary, so when I would say, whack things like, wow, and I didn't even know that was in the Bible, (laughs) people were like, I thought she was a missionary. (laughs) And so it was a really interesting time, but the Lord grabbed me then. Um, There were some immediate changes in my thought processes and others that took uh, a slower amount of time. Um but that I met with the senior pastor of that church in South Africa before I left and he looked at me and he said God is going to use you in the media hmm. and I thought well that's a no brainer I just told you I was a film producer <laughs> but I I didn't realize um the extent to which God would I mean it's it's a privilege to be working in any career it's a privilege to work um when you have the opportunity to write books for Christians or to make films about what Christians are doing, um, that is a privilege, and I am grateful for it, but it was, it was actually my work along the years. that was God's crucible of sanctification, so <laughs> I'm glad I had the faith to keep going.
1: <laughs> In a moment, we'll continue this conversation with today's guest, the author of The Measure of Success, Carolyn McCulley. First Person has partnered with Mission Aviation Fellowship to make available to you a free copy of the classic book, Jungle Pilot, telling the life story of early missionary aviation pilot Nate Saint and the pioneering work of MAF. I've narrated this special audio edition of Jungle Pilot, and a free download is available at firstpersoninterview.com. Your whole family will enjoy listening to Jungle Pilot. To download, visit firstpersoninterview.com. She is the author of The Measure of Success and other books as well. Carolyn McCulley is my guest today on First Person. And Carolyn, already you've prompted so many questions in my mind that I want to ask you, and I want to get to the heart of this book, The Measure of Success. But first of all, you, as you've indicated, you're a filmmaker, and I've seen some of your work. It's it's outstanding. And tell me about that today and, and your calling to film.
0: Well, thank you for taking time to look at the work and also for your encouragement. I have never really left a love of show-and-tell. I encountered that in kindergarten, and I was like, this is my thing. (laughs) This is where I'm going to be, (laughs) show-and-tell. And actually, one of my earliest memories was pulling together a group of kids in in kindergarten and um, uh, sometime around that time period in the neighborhood, I was around five, I wrote out a little play, directed it, produced it, took it to all the neighbors' porches and charged them 25 cents to watch. And so I've been kind of doing the same thing ever since. <laughs> Profit margin's about the same, too, which is <laughs> a
1: little scary. You've used that line before, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I know filmmaking's an important part of what you do, Um, You have remained single these years, and that's a part of your testimony. And I Mm -hmm. want to talk to you about this issue of of biblical womanhood. I understand it was your pastor who encouraged you to start thinking and writing along these lines.
0: Yes, it was. Um, My pastor—actually, I've had many champions in Christ who have laid before me burdens um, and challenged me to write on— various topics, so that's been a real encouragement to know it's not something that I have tried to pull together simply to advance my own thoughts, but because somebody else saw a need, a ministry need. My first book was on being single, and for the record, it's not something I've chosen, (laughs) and I haven't chosen to be a career woman either. It was following the providence of God. Absolutely. Um, He showed me that it's so easy, especially in our churches, to identify with an adjective over a noun, to see yourself as single, rather than being made a woman in His image. And the, the Bible's emphasis is on being made female to reflect something of that in the Lord. And that there would be different seasons for women. Some of us um, will not change, you know, you'll remain single, but a lot of women start single, get married and single again, you know, through the unfortunate circumstance of widowhood. And that status isn't what defines you. It's your relationship with God is what defines you. So my first book, the unfortunately titled Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye? <laughs> which I never thought until after it was published how that took so much boldness to read that in public. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's, you know, it was an exploration of what it means to be made a fruitful woman in every season of life, but with a concentration on singleness and that you're not in the waiting room of adulthood. You, know, you are called to be fruitful even in that season.
1: Hmm. And it's interesting to me how God uses our past uh, and uses it for His glory throughout our life. I mean, before Christ, you said you were involved in women's studies, and I'm sure you were steeped in all of that. And yet, once you're redeemed, you bring that to bear, you know, the Bible to bear and all of that. It must give you a very unique perspective.
0: Uh, It did, I think. I don't know about unique, but definitely an unusual perspective and and a burden as well, because I wrote my second book, Radical Womanhood, to be the book that I wanted to have as a new believer, that explained all the things that I had been taught in school and through culture, and and one perspective on women, and then compare and contrast it with what the Bible had to say. And that's still my spiritual Achilles heel, if you will. If I'm going to get tripped up, I'm going to be tripped up over issues of pride and um, ambition, selfish ambition. Not necessarily ambition for God's glory, but ambition for my glory, Um, and those issues that are at the root of some of the issues with feminism. But I wanted to be intellectually fair, too, and to say, you know, people saw early on, they saw a lot of historical wrongs, things that needed to be corrected. It's just their solutions. Their worldview drove them to develop solutions to those problems that were anti God. And I I feel that sometimes the Church isn't fair in saying that, yeah, (laughs) there was a lot of wrongs being done to women. Unfortunately, if we had responded with uh, good gospel grace to some of the situations, they might have changed. And they did in certain quarters, certainly. Christians were leading the way in issues like abolition and um, child labor laws, etc. But when I went back and looked through the history, um, I understood that you could accurately look at a situation and see a wrong but it's your worldview that will drive the solution mm-hmm. that you offer. And so when when women would see women being um, discriminated against, legally discriminated against, culturally discriminated against, abused, and so they would see that as being justified by God and then move away from God, I thought, no, that's exactly the opposite of what I see in Scripture. So that's what I wanted to offer in this book. And it was really written to my, myself as a new believer so that, people could understand these challenges.
1: Now, this book is called The Measure of Success. What is the measure of success? We, unfortunately, won't have enough time to really do it justice, but I I want to get a quick answer, and, and we'll encourage listeners to go read the book.
0: The Measure of Success is an answer to our culture's current struggle on how women should be productive. And it is divided into three sections. The first is the history of of work, because it's really important for us to understand that as we look at the scriptures that address women's productivity and women's work in the home, that our understanding, our modern understanding, is very different from what the vast uh, bulk of humanity would have understood and or experienced. It was after the Industrial Revolution that the location of women's productivity split Hmm. And the home became not a place of productivity, economic productivity, but of consumption. And that's important for us to understand because we are still called to work. So the second segment of the book is uh, addressing the theology of work for women because work is not a curse. It was something that was given to us in the garden to do, to work with God, to bless His creation, and to love others. And the third section is on the life cycle of work because of these factors that we are called to be productive for God's glory, but because of what's happened throughout the course of history, it takes incredible wisdom to try to figure out how to do it now, to, to live lives that are seeking God's glory in the face of so much cultural pressure. So my collaborator, Nora Shank, and I really hope that this book will be an encouragement to women in different seasons of life, those who are starting off in their 20s, women who are starting the second chapter of life in their 50s. Both audiences were in our minds as we were writing this, because we see that the current challenges on how to lean in, how to have success, how do you define yourself, where's your identity coming from, all the things that our culture is wrestling with, there are answers in the Bible, and they're not one-size-fits-all answers. Hmm. So we hope that it's a great book of encouragement for women.
1: If you could change one thing about how the world looks at women, what, what would that be? What, what would you change if, uh, if you could?
0: Oh, Wow. That's a big question, and no one's ever asked me that before. There are many things that come to mind, but I think perhaps the preeminent thing would be um, the objectification of women, because obviously we have such a huge problem with human trafficking and sex trafficking around the world. But that's rooted in seeing women as second-class citizens and as, as tools for pleasure rather than creatures made in God's image. And so that's an evidence of the sin that runs rampant in this world. But when I look to the accounts of Jesus interacting with women in scriptures, I'm always encouraged that he never viewed women like that. He was always encouraging of the women around him.
1: Isn't it it interesting that, that women always felt safe around Jesus, didn't they?
0: Yes. Even the women who were condemned by culture, they felt safe around him. That offers such great hope to us today.
1: Carolyn, we have just a moment left, but I'm sensing in these books that you've written, that you've talked about here today, that there is a progression to them, isn't there?
0: Very much so. The first book really was looking at the foundational issues of what it meant to be a woman in God and framed through the lens of singleness. And the second book really was looking at what is our role in the home and why feminists thought that being in the home was such a second-class job, and um, the roles of being a wife and a mother, and um, and what the impact of the private sphere, which is what I prefer to call the home, so that we don't confuse it with the four-walled structure, but the private sphere of the, the home is the place where God rewards things that the marketplace does not, and the investments that you make in children and neighbors and elderly and caring for the disabled and serving um, in capacities that don't have an economic. Uh, price tag to them. Those things are precious to the Lord and why we came to to denigrate them. That was really the, the exploration of the second book. But in that, I realized as I was doing that history, wow, our understanding of the home is completely different from what history did. And so it led to the third book, which was something my pastor wanted us to have as we were planting a new church, to look at What does that mean for a woman to work? Because that's obviously a very sensitive topic in our culture. And so it forced me to go back and look at what Scripture had to say about this and bringing in the understanding that I had of how the home had changed to understand why it's so challenging now for women because the location of our economic Uh, Productivity and our work as a parent used to take place pretty much in the same location, but now often in multiple locations, and that's the stress point for women. But the scriptures still give us a great model for figuring out how to invest what God has given us over the course of a lifetime. And you have to think in terms of an entire arc of a woman's life, or you will be trying to do it all and find out that you can't.
1: What does Christ mean to you today?
0: I feel like I'm in a turning point in my life, and that He is making me look more and more into the new heavens and new earth and what's to come, and really finding myself to be identified as a pilgrim in this life, and I feel like now He's making that clearer than ever. If you if you see it in through the eyes of faith, you'll realize that you can be evergreen, as the scriptures promise us, as we're rooted in Christ, evergreen even as our bodies are, are falling apart.
1: Our First Person guest today has been author and filmmaker Carolyn McCulley. In addition to her book, The Measure of Success, she has written Radical Womanhood, Feminine Faith in a Feminine World, and Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye, Trusting God with a Hope Deferred. We'll place additional information and links to Carolyn's website at FirstPersonInterview.com. Again, that's FirstPersonInterview.com. And looking back a few weeks, the free download of the audiobook Jungle Pilot is still available at FirstPersonInterview.com. Just follow the links to download a free copy of the life story of martyred missionary pilot Nate Saint. Our thanks to Mission Aviation Fellowship for making the audiobook available free of charge. Next week, you'll meet a young man who is a chief digital officer specializing in helping ministries. Plus, he's a pastor. You'll meet Shane Norman next week. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard, inviting you to join us again next week for First Person.